company which literally uses Gaza and Palestinians as a laboratory and then uses this to sell their weapons to other oppressive regimes across the world and enjoys being able to produce and manufacture them in the UK. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Today, we're joined by Hura Amori and Richard Barnard, the co-founders of Palestine Action, which is a group formed last year to take direct direct action against Israel in the UK. For just over a year, Palestine Action has been campaigning against Elbit, a major Israeli arms manufacturer, which has 10 factories and offices in the UK. Huda and Richard, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, So you've recently celebrated the first anniversary of Palestine Action. You've been going for one year although you've both been involved in direct action and campaigning um, in different ways for much longer than that. So uh, we want to use this episode to look back and reflect on your first year um, and talk about uh, the strategy of direct action. Um, But first of all, for our viewers and listeners, for those who may not be familiar, could you talk about Albert? Who are Albert and why did you decide to choose them as your first target? Yeah, definitely. So um, Elbit, Elbit Systems is actually Israel's largest arms manufacturer, um, who, as Nora mentioned before, have got 10 sites here in the UK. Uh, so they're quite prominent. They're all across England from um, Oldham to Bristol. There is an Elbit site um, and they actually market their weapons as battle tested, essentially because they've been tested on the captive population um, of, in Gaza and in pal- Palestinians in the West Bank. And these weapons are then produced here. Um, and something that Albert's notorious for is their drones, which, uh, which they supply 85% of Israel's military drone fleet, Albert systems. And many of these parts and drones are actually built here in our towns and cities on our doorsteps. So this is a company which literally uses Gaza and Palestinians as a laboratory and then uses this to sell their weapons to other oppressive regimes across the world and enjoys being able to produce and manufacture them in the UK, um, which has a lot to do with the UK's you know, diplomatic ties with Israel. So, so for us, when setting up Palestine Action, it was quite clear that we had to take on um, Albert Systems as it's one of the you know, key parts um, and key enablers of Israel's apartheid regime and something which we could solidly impact from where we are. I think I'll just add that, like strategically, for us, it was important to go after one company. Um, so there's many complicit companies, obviously, um, I don't know, JCP, Caterpillar, and other examples. But um, for the reasons that I just described, they're the most evil of the evil. Um, and it's easy to get that across to people who have not been concerned, um, or may have been concerned, but not active in the Palestinian struggle. And therefore, when we want to reach out and create a direct action movement, we need to th- keep things simple, not a sort of secondary th- the target, and also to keep focused. For us, the key to winning to success is to focus on one complicit company at a time until we've got a million people on our, on our books, and then we can go after all of them at a time. So it was strategically uh, important. And, and I would want to say that we've also been successful on that because we've seen 
numerous people join us who weren't active in the Palestinian struggle before, only had maybe a, a superficial understanding of that. Um, and from my own experience, I would include myself in that. When I found out Elbit was a factory near where I lived in Kent and what they were doing, that kind of brought me into the struggle that way around, rather than being educated on what is sometimes described as a, a complex issue, although obviously we don't consider it a complex issue at all. Can you talk a little bit about direct action, um, what it is, what, how it um, manifests in, in the, you know, in the strategy that you take um, and, and why you chose that as a strategy instead of like, you know, sit-in protests or petitions, for example? Yeah, definitely. I can start on that. I think for us, what Palestine Action was, there was a void we felt in, in, in the UK um, for a sustained direct action movement. We have had things and seen things like petition campaigns, protests, etc. But I think for many of us, myself included, the, the frustration was growing at the lack of results, so to speak, whilst the situation in Palestine continues to deteriorate. And when you see that um, happen, even just recently in, in May, we saw hundreds of thousands of people sign a petition, a UK government petition for sanctions on Israel. Um, and I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've watched the, the, the debate and it was painful to watch, quite frankly. And that was after hundreds of thousands of people signed it. I, I did not watch the debate because... <laughs> you know, it's too painful. <laughs> I it lasted me 20 minutes. <laughs> we live a, a rock and roll lifestyle. <laughs> <Sitting around watching. laughs> I reserve my um, my uh, massacre. I forget which it is. Masochism, yeah, masochism mm -hmm. for um, Israeli propaganda or you know pro-Israeli propaganda. That's where I spend my time. Holding <laughs> <laughs> the Parliament debate. To be honest, it was it was very painful to see, and it's you know even the ones. Even the, the MPs who are supposed to be on side are just using the whole, oh, well, why don't we recognize Palestine um, as a scapegoat to basically do nothing on the actual issue and not tackling the fact that they're literally building their weapons here, which at the time and it continued to be used against uh, the people of Gaza um, and, and will continue to happen. And I think when you see the same thing happen time and time again, um, there's, there's something horrific happens in Palestine, which is always happening. And there's an escalation. People talk about it. People go out in the streets and protest. Then when it dies down, the protests die down and we end up in the same situation time and time again. Um, and for us, direct action made the most logical sense as a step forward into actually achieving our aims and, and winning because um, that's what we wanted to do. And for us, direct action means we're no longer going to appeal to the middleman, uh, which in this case could be the government, local politicians, etc., to make the changes that we want to see and that have to happen um, because people's lives are literally at stake and their freedom is at stake if, we, if those steps aren't taken. And rather than taking that same route, we go directly to the source and shut them down, stop their operations, stop them from working. And this can happen through you know, multiple different ways. If it's people often using their own bodies to physically stop the production of these weapons, if it's people chained onto the gates, sitting in the road, climbing on top of the roof of the factory, as as I think we've become quite known for in Palestine Action, um, people uh, destroying the windows, security cameras, anything which disrupts the production of those weapons. Because when people cause higher levels of damage, 
um, it means that the, the factory is shut for a much longer period of time. And so we've seen that in the past year, Palace and Action, when we added it up, it was over 100 days Albert's factories were actually shut for um, during, during our first year. I think I would also add, so yeah, it was about taking the power into our own hands, that kind of whole yeah. theoretical understanding of direct action. But more than that, it was also recognising the zeitgeist. Yeah, it's recognising where we're at in the world. Younger people and not so younger people are fed up, are fed up with mainstream politics, yeah, with party politics, with all that. You know, if we look around, of, in, again, in the, in the Palestine movement um, in this country, the majority of people at those meetings, you know, are retired. Um, and young people get it now, right? The movements like Extinction Rebellion in the Climate and other such movements, young people don't want to wait around and understandably and correctly don't want to wait around 20 years when people are being killed and living under a brutal apartheid regime day after day. People want things to happen now. That's the kind of postmodern mindset. Um, and therefore recognising that and going um, strategically, this is the right thing from a theoretical point of view, but it's also the right time, crucially, the right time to bring on loads of new people, bring on young people, make those things. And, and I suppose in, the, in, the, in, in our original thinking, there was also like direct action had often been done by small groups of very closed people who were, you know, yes, we're, we've got this all right and we're going to do it once again. And, and, and I, I'm going to criticise them because I was part of those people and we would be the purists and we would do it once a year and feel good about ourselves and go home and really Albert Systems would go yeah so what there's eight of them in the in the UK we can we can stand that but actually there's loads more than eight of them there's thousands of people who want to do it it's just creating the opportunity for those people to do it and yes you know young people but actually there's loads of good people who have been involved in the struggle for a long time who are going this is just what I've been waiting 20 years to do I don't want to wait around I don't want to write to politicians. I want to do this. And therefore, I think recognising how the world is at the moment and saying that was, was also another crucial element for us. And I suppose the other thing on it is it, it was also not just sort of a, a thing we just dreamt up in the pub, although actually we did dream it up in the pub. Um, <laughs> um, but, we, but we did have some theory. We're dreaming things up in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> although we, um, we did have some theory behind it. Yeah, We're not just like you know, like people on all sides have accused us of just doing wanton violence, yeah? This is, you know, we, I'm not saying we're the most deeply intellectual people, but we have read some other stuff around it. We have talked to people who've, who've started large-scale direct action movements. We've talked to people who've researched this, and they said to us that the literature describes three important elements to a successful direct action campaign. And the first one is you've got to disrupt them. There is no point, you know, if you want to win, um, unless you're looking at things in some kind of uh, metaphysical way, there's no point having a vigil or standing in a protest outside a factory or as the, or as the Israeli, Israeli embassy shouting at a wall, asking them to stop being evil, stop having an evil apartheid regime. It's just not, it's just ridiculous. Um, if you want to stop it, you've got to disrupt them. And, you, and if you're going to go after the company, you've got to disrupt the company. You've got to put your bodies on the line in whatever way that is um, and whatever people come comfortable with. That's the key element, disrupt them. If you want to grow a movement, including lots of people who've not been involved in it for a long time or not ever involved in it, you have to have some kind of sacrificial element. Um, so you can't just have 
just have. You can have this, but you can't just have balaclavered people running around, running off and hiding and causing damage. Yeah, You have to have some people who are brave enough to stay there and get you know, arrested. We don't chase arrest. We much prefer it if we didn't. But that sacrificial element brings people in. They see it and they go, why are they getting nicked for people they've never met and are a long way away? Um, and and that, that's a key element to bring more people in. And the third element is you've got to create that dilemma. You've got to create a dilemma. For us, the dilemma is for the company. So when I discussed pre-Palestine action, you know, both my, myself and Huda were involved in direct action, pre-Palestine action against Elbit. But they didn't really have a dilemma because it was just not happening frequently enough. And they'd just go, well, we don't need to prosecute them. We can just ignore this. But actually, once you create a sustained direct action movement with lots of people and lots of press and lots of um, social media, then they've got a bit of a dilemma. And they go, do we crack down on them now? Do we arrest them? What do we do? And they don't really know. And our experience is they actually go really hard on us. And then when they see more and more people being attracted by that, you know, they make the same, the state makes the same mistake every time. They go, shit, now there's just creating more of them. Let's stop arresting them or let's release them. And then eventually we win. So those three elements for us were the key thing. We had to have disruption, sacrifice, and continually creating those dilemma. And we reflect on those actually probably daily um, as, to, as to how that they're playing out and certainly at the start after an anniversary, one year, um, we, we reflect on that now and reflect on how we go forward. Um, so, yeah, you mentioned there, you've uh, alluded to it about there's been other, lots of other direct action in the past and um, including on the issue of Palestine. And I think of campaigns like uh, the Smash Edo campaign in, in mm -hmm. Brighton against the, the Edo Arms Factory. Um, which was sustained for quite a long time, but didn't manage to shut the factory down. Um, but there was also the case of Carmel Agrexco, the Israeli fruit and vegetable importer in Uxbridge in northwest London, a suburb of northwest London, which did involve direct action, which was fairly sustained. I don't, I don't think it was intense as what you've been doing, uh, but that was successful. Um, you know, there were other factors involved. Um, but it did shut down. So it, it shows that uh, these campaigns can definitely work. Um, and I think what, and we're going to come on to this, um, but I, th I think what they managed to do there was have a, a legal strategy, which is a very similar legal strategy to what I understand you have, which is essentially uh, you are... You, it, when they choose to prosecute you, they charge. They tend to charge you with criminal damages and, and charges associated around criminal damage. But your legal strategy is to say we're not guilty of criminal damage because it's actually proportionate, uh, non-violent uh, action that is necessary to prevent a uh, war crime, a greater crime under international law, which is what Elbit is doing against Palestinians. Um, and against people uh, around the world who it's arming, as you mentioned, and other oppressive regimes. So uh, have I got the correct understanding of your legal strategy? Yeah, definitely. Um, and what's, what's interesting about you know, the legal strategy as well is, as Rich mentioned before, both um, me and him and other people have been involved in direct action against Elbit in the past. And every single time they were always magistrates court level which means you're literally just trialed by one judge um, and every single time the case just got 
dropped, dropped. People weren't even charged a lot of the time. Um, my case in 2017, it was dropped the day before trial. Um, and we just saw this time and time again, where it seemed that you literally anyone could go and do anything at Albert and no one's going to get convicted. Um, so one of our first actions um, involved us going on the roof of Shenstone um, of the Albert factory in Staffordshire, where they produce the engines for Albert's drones. And as part of that action, we did, it did involve paint. Um, it did involve uh, destroying the windows, the air conditioning units, etc., and um, basically destroying everything that we can get our hands on at the time because we were adamant we were going to disrupt this company for as long as possible. And even though we were only there for three days, we were taken down after three days, the factory remained shut for two weeks after we were taken off the roof, causing them further disruption. Um, and part of that was actually getting our cases into the Crown Court, where it's much harder for Albert Systems to drop those cases or for the police not to charge, even though we're now seeing that as well, which I'll go on to, because it's, it's then saying, okay, well, before we were blocking it, maybe there was a bit of spray paint here and there, but it wasn't anything that they couldn't handle. Now it's high level amounts of disruption to their company. Um, so hopefully they're backed into a corner where it's basically, okay, we can't not convict them or take them to trial, but at the same time, now they have to face up to what they're doing. They have to respond to disclosure requests um, when they come through to Albert Systems to disclose exactly what they're doing. Um, and they'll have to face up to that in court when that is basically our whole defense, which is how can you know, this be considered a crime or criminal damage? Well, if you wanna look at criminal damage, you have to look at Gaza or the West Bank, and then you can see the true damage, which you know, isn't, isn't the cost of one window. Um, you, know, you can't compare a single life um, a single life of a single Palestinian to however much damage we do to all of the Albert factories. Uh, there is no comparison when we're talking about property versus people's livelihoods. Um, and, and I think that they don't want to face up to that and we're ready for that. And our first trial for that case, the Shenstone case, was supposed to happen in May uh, whilst Gaza was being bombed. And literally a few days before, once the bombing started, they adjourned the case for over a year. because obviously they knew that they were gonna lose. Um, and, and so now we're seeing as well in cases, um, eight people, including from Extinction Rebellion and Palestine Action, it was quite a high profile action, took action at the Albert factory in Oldham. Um, they caused, um, the police initially told them that they cost over 20,000 pounds worth of damage and further costs because of disruption. And now, all six out of the eight have not got any charges. They've been told there'll be no further action against them, even though there were videos, public videos of them taking action against this factory, right? There was no, uh, they delayed charging for six months and then they dropped six out of eight of them and they're continuing with two of them. And we'll see if that even goes to trial. Um, but we definitely wanna get into, have these trials go ahead because they're obviously, got, they're obviously scared of going to trial. And for us, it's part of the whole direct action strategy. It's, it continues after the action, then it's the court cases. And you know, if we win um, a few cases, then Albert literally have no, um, have no ability to stay here because even the legal system will be saying, actually everyone has full rights to destroy them. Um, so hopefully we'll actually get a trial. Yeah, I think that's crucial. I think the example you gave 
Avida, another example is um, the Raytheon factory in Derry, where uh, initially nine people went in, caused loads of damage, threw the computers out the window, were charged, were found not guilty in, on the whole. I think one person got a minor conv conviction. Um, and then once they were found not guilty, nine more people went in and did the same. And that's the key, yeah? Is if, if at that point, Raytheon were like, well, we can't stay here because um, the, the, the courts are basically saying they're not going to protect us. Um, and that's kind of the, that line with the, the, um, the strategy around Crown Court cases. You're more likely to be found not guilty in a Crown Court. You can appeal directly to 12 people drawn at lottery in a jury rather than a white middle-class judge, as you might get in a magistrate's mm -hmm. court. Um, so I think that, that that's kind of our strategy around that. And, and like I just said, it's twofold. It's also that the higher level of damage and disruption that's caused is the more time they're shut and that's key as well. And I think these two things go hand in hand. Um, and we'll see if they ever actually proceed with a case, um, which also provides problems for them, I think, because the longer the cases go on, the more chance um, we have of appealing for things like any current bail conditions could be taken off. Mm. Um, it's outrageous that cases are taking two, three years and some people have bail conditions that they can't go to a protest you know we have bail conditions we can't go within 100 meters of an Albert site which you know is, is you know is against all kinds of human rights in terms of wanting to continue to protest and if that goes on for two and a half years you know that's that's outrageous yeah. um so I think yeah it's it's they've got much more to lose than us you know at the worst we might spend a few months in prison um but they've actually got their whole you know business model in severe jeopardy because of the nature of it and all over the country yeah, definitely. I just add one more thing. And we're also seeing so at the start of Palestine Action, um, most of the cases immediately, I think it was after the Shenstone action, they started banning everyone from Albert side. So if you took action, they put you on police bail, which is actually quite minor and you can break it and they just arrest you and release you. Um, but then if you're on court bail, then they, they have an ability to actually hold you in prison. Um, so it's much more... Um, of a kind of message to people that you can't go near these sites. And now we're seeing that people aren't even getting those bail conditions anymore. In fact, people who went inside Oldham just over a month ago, um, they destroyed the machinery which builds the electronic parts um, for Israel's weapons and cost over half a million. That was just a rough estimate. They had 150 pictures of the damage. They did it in front of the police and they weren't just not charged, they now have no bail conditions. So they're allowed to go to, to Elbit and they frequently go outside and protest, um, which is just extraordinary for, for the type of actions that we're doing and what you would expect as a response, even though it's wrong, um, it seems to be shifting a lot. What is your advice to uh, other activists, um, not just in the UK, but um, here in North America, um, you, you know, who are, uh, you know, looking with admiration at, at the kind of um, very strategic direct actions that Palestine Action is taking. Um, what is your, yeah, what's your advice to activists who, you know, are, are tired of just going to one protest a year or signing yet another petition or watching as so-called progressive um, lawmakers sign over yet again, another, you know, multi-billion dollar aid package to the Israeli military. Um, 
I would say, first of all, reach out to us. Um, we have had a lot of, we have had people um, from all across, all across the world who are um, now looking at setting up Palestine Action and doing similar things um, where they are. Um, aside from that, what I would say is, the first thing is find, find the target. Um, if you've got, there's Elbit everywhere across the US. I know it's a big place, so you probably have to travel a bit, but um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to begin. But there is Elbit sites all across the US and they are, they're often quite open about the information of like, we had an Elbit factory here who just put their supply chain on their website, which was gold dust for activists mm. looking to disrupt it. Mm -hmm. It's finding a target and, and and it sounds, you know, cliche or simple, but just just starting. I mean, our first action it was literally just four of us, and we stormed inside the um, office. We we just knocked on the door. They say we broke in, but the guys had opened the door. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just smiled at it. <laughs> and we we went in with paint and spray paint, and we had a video camera, um, and then. And then we we were obviously we were massively outnumbered by the security guards. They had like four security guards, and there was four of us. Um, so we didn't get very this. Far. This was the headquarters in London, was it? Yeah, yeah, that was the headquarters. And we tried to get to the seventh floor or the sixth floor, which is where Albert's offices were. We didn't quite reach there. Um, so the next week we went in with more people, um, and and it just kind of you know progressed from there. It was the idea of just starting and then having an avenue of like action, you know, I think the most important way of getting other people as well, like-minded people is starting off with a few people. It's always how it's done historically and, and starting off doing that action, get, get, make sure it's recorded, you know, if it's not recorded, no one's going to see it. And that's what inspires more people to join. Um, and then things kind of grow from there. So having, taking action in the first place, there's obviously going to be different tactics and different legal systems. So, you know, having a bit of knowledge on that and having a good lawyer Who's, who's experienced in that as well. Um, but then having an avenue for people to actually join you. So not just having something that's great, but having a way for people to join. For us, we've got a form, we've got a social media, we've got our website. So it's easy for people to know how to join us and then uh, people run regular workshops, et cetera. But having that avenue and, and I think growing as, you know, taking more steps to grow your movement as your movement actually grows. So, you know, kind of, we did it, it was very natural, I think, in a lot of ways. We obviously pushed it a lot, but um, after, you know, and it's perseverance and it's being sustained as well um, and, and mixing it up. But I think that, you know, the crucial thing is, is it's, not, it's not that difficult. Um, to actually do it. You know, I've done things which were way more difficult. I stayed up all night doing research projects, etc. One of the easiest and most satisfying things I ever did was storming into the Albert office and then climbing onto the roof of their factory. Um, and, you know, just that feeling of knowing that you're, you've just used your own body to basically shut down this massive company um, is, 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 a, is a great feeling and, and produces great results as well. Yeah, I think... Doing something rather than nothing is the sort of takeaway phrase for me. Yeah, we can we can sit around and discuss and plan everything to a T, and really go into that too much on occasions. The history of direct action movements is often the history of failing and learning from your mistakes, um, or being pleasantly surprised at how easy things were. 
you know, like we said, going into Elbit there. Also, um, I remember going into Elbit factory um, in Kent and having two rows of security and literally just walking past them going morning and a bunch of people walking past with someone with a camera um, and um, just one expecting that success in your action. I know it's that kind of, it's starting to sound a bit like power of positive thinking, but also <laughs> expect movements to grow and be open to that. I think that's one yeah. of my takeouts, yeah? Is that that whole, you know, when I've said before at Palestine Action, often it was like, we're gonna be bunkered down. We're gonna be secret. We, we, everyone's gonna be able to get us. But actually being open to more people to join in is a really key attitude to, to, to take open to the fact that people will join from other movements, open to the fact that they might not know everything about the issue and might not have the perfect politics, but they want to do things. And that education comes the other way around. Yeah. Don't spend your life trying to educate people about, about the issue when they want to take action. Talk to them afterwards and keep it simple. And then it comes the other way around, I think is key. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, Huda's a million percent right. You know, we've had quite a lot, maybe not disagreements, but I was certainly someone who didn't have a clue what social media even was um, and knowing any of these things, but recording things is just like so crucial to a way of it. At the start, you're not gonna get media um, and recording that and putting it out on social media is, is just such a key thing. You know, virtually everybody who joins Palestine Action will say and tick a box saying Instagram or some other social media thing is where they found out about it. You know, we could be on the main BBC news and I think we'd get more people join us for Instagram or other social medias. I think that's really, really key at this time. Yeah. <clears throat> so as I mentioned earlier, this is the first anniversary uh, last month, I think was the first, first anniversary of Palestine Action. What do you think your greatest success has been? Still being here. <laughs> <laughs> Not being in prison. Well, That's yeah, huge. <laughs> there is an element of, of truth to that, though, as, as a movement, because um, we did, you know, I think, I think still being here and being much stronger position than where we were when we started off. I don't, um, I think we had a vision of what we wanted to be. Um, and I think, I think we're quite pleased of how the first, how the first year went, but having, grown this you know base this massive base of support um for us is is crucial and having you know just that reflection on how much have you actually disrupted Albert systems um and seeing that um I, I think is a great success and I and you know for us to still be here there was a there was a concerted effort by the state when we started off Palestine Action which is the easiest time to crush any movement is when they're just starting off and they obviously that was clearly part of their tactic um, was to crush our spirits um, right at the start. And, and you know, that perseverance just continuing is, is, is why, why we're still here today and people joining and people taking that risk, even when they could see that we were getting, you know, thrown to the ground or stopped by counter-terrorism police or raided and, you know, Richard got charged with blackmail and, and all of these different tactics that they used and stealing our passport etc we could go on it all happened in a very short time frame actually it felt like it was forever but it wasn't it was probably the first um you know five six months we experienced the worst kind of repression everyone who got arrested it was to be expected that your house will get raided um even though that's not a power that the police often use it's a power that they can have if you're arrested 
we're seeing that change now um, quite a lot, actually. And I think it's that point where the police and the state know if you've got too much of a level of support, then they can't get away with things as easily as they could have at the start. Um, and now we're in a much stronger position um, and unstoppable, I'd like to say, at this point. Um, so I think being here and having a successful year and having so many people um, join us is, is, is one of our greatest successes. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think it's possible to narrow it down to anything. You can think of like, um, when you say that, you, you automatically think, oh, Leicester, there was thousands of people out blocking yeah. the things. Yeah. But you know what? Every single element and every single person who's done something, some of whom have never shown their faces and things, has been a contributing factor to that. And I think any kind of like highlight on one, and when I think back to all of them, they all have had their individual um, circumstances and individual people and individual stories. For me, that's always the interesting thing, hearing people's stories and how they do it um, and why they took part. That's the kind of thing that warms my heart as to why they would do that. Um, and also, um, I suppose as a really focused um, movement, as a focus, a movement that wants to win, we're not going to sit around talking about our successes until we've done Elbit over and they've gone. Um, right. Then we'll talk about it. Yeah. 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 Well, you've preempted my <clears throat> my next question, which was <laughs> uh, about your greatest challenges. Um, so, just to give a little bit of background, I suppose. <clears throat> I've written uh, I've written about this at the Electronic Intifada about how uh, and uh, our contributor Mohammed Al Mazi has written about how police have threatened or implied that they're going to use counter terror legislation against you. Um, you yourselves have been stopped under Schedule Seven of the of the uh, Terrorism Act. Um, which uh, basically suspends normal uh, due process and the right to silence and so forth. Um, you're, as you mentioned, your activist homes have been raided. Um, th there's been, you know, trumped up politicized charges, as you mentioned, uh, blackmail, which was actually for, for Richard saying that he was going to go on hunger strike. <laughs> um, and there's been this whole series of things and also, uh, censorship on social media, which, you know, is quite common against um, uh, social media accounts of Palestinians or their supporters. Um, so all this added together, you know, you've got a, a great number of, of challenges against you. And um, yeah, talk about that a little bit. Like, what is it like? Does it does it feel intimidating? Does it feel um, does it feel like sometimes does it just feel like too much to handle? Um, I think it's been difficult at times, uh, but I, I think with, with certain things, you know, for example, all the platforms are moving us. I think we're onto eight now um, who have taken taken us down. Eight social media yeah. accounts. Yeah, no. So Facebook taken us down, um, and then we tried to create a new page about five times, and they were they were all taken down within like a day. Um, Instagram was next to come, but we did manage to get our Instagram account back, which was which was yeah, good. Um, we've had five different fundraising platforms take us down. And the last one actually told us that the reason, um, it was Chuffed, who were an Australian company. It told us that the reason that they took us down, they were only one to tell us, was that Elbit was sending them letters, threatening them basically and saying, oh. if you, 
if you um, continue to support this, we will take legal action against you. And then, mm. you know, they just, they just said, we, we really want to support you, but we can't afford to go bankrupt. I was like, okay, fair enough. But at least, at least they told us, and we're trying to get that letter still. Um, what, what is Chuffed? It's a fundraising platform. And we chose them after being, after being taken off all these other ones. And they actually told us that the likely reason you've been taken off all these other ones is because Elbit's sending these letters. Um, yeah. The lawyers are. And um, they, yeah, so they have an Australian fundraising platform who actually XR, Extinction Rebellion, use um, for their kind of action-based stuff. So we thought, right, this is perfect. Read all their terms and conditions, et cetera. And, and then it just happens again and again. Um, and, you know, that gets quite frustrating. You need funds, et cetera. But I think each time, just made us more determined to go, all right, but well, we will just figure out another way. And now we have our own platform um, to fundraise money on. Um, I think, you know, with the, with the police encounters, it's much, it's very different getting arrested on an action. When you've gone in, you know you're going to get arrested, you've done the right thing, you're pleased about it, they don't have that power over you. Um, I think it's quite different when they take you by surprise and you're not expecting it. Um, so I think we definitely had some, some challenges, but at the same time, I think they made us more determined to, um, to continue and to not let it deter us. Because if you're getting such a strong reaction from the state and we knew, and this is probably one of my other greatest successes of partisan action was that Dominic Raab had a meeting with the Israeli Minister of Strategic Affairs right. and Benny Gantz, where they you know, asked them to crush us. And, and all of this stuff kind of follows, which you know, smooth. It's quite it's quite an achievement to actually have. But if you're if you're rubbing off those people in the wrong way, then you know you're doing something right. Um, and and uh, after that, you know, we experienced a lot of a, a lot of these different things that were happening. Um, and I think yeah, I mean, I think that's uh, that was a really important key turning point. Um, the Minister of Strategic Affairs, of course, being Israel's. Uh, ministry which was devoted to countering the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, sanctions movement and other forms of Palestine solidarity using a, a dirty tricks campaign basically around the world. Um, it's recently just announced actually that it was it's going to be closing down but that its functions are transferred to other ministries. But just as you were starting up, I, I mentioned this in my most recent article about Palestine action, um, the, the, the Minister of Strategic Affairs at the time had a meeting with, um, as you mentioned, Dominic Raab um, in, in, in Jerusalem. Um, and she, as you mentioned, she asked basically <laughs> for him to shut you down. So it does seem, it does seem like that that uh, request and the willingness of the Tory government and the British state in general to cooperate with Israel is behind at least some of this repression and it, because it does seem it does seem to me that the way you've been treated um is i don't want to say better or worse than you know how other activist groups are treated um, because there's different forms of repression in different manners but there, there is a certain intensity there targeting you which doesn't seem to be present uh, in other groups like uh, um, extinction rebellion for example would you agree with that I think that's definitely true, um, having been involved in that movement, the way that we've been treated is much differently, um, both as individuals within it and, and the way that we've yeah, been spied on, 
um, police cameras and all those things we just talked about. I think I think that is definitely true. It's a very different different approach by them. I'd also just go in terms of answering the previous question as well. I would just say that it's not nice, um, and I wouldn't want ever anybody to have to go through some of the things we've been through. But we have to put it in context, in internationalist context. Um, it's bad um, and and those things, but we're not you know we've not been extra um, extrajudicially. Um, arrested and put in prison for years on end, like our brothers and sisters in occupied Palestine are, um, and other parts of the world. We don't have to face that constant threat that Elbit's evil weapons are flying overhead every day. Um, and we must put it in that context. We can't just go, well, we're living in the UK, they're being a bit, they're being a bit shitty to us. Um, we have to see it in a wider context and see this, you know, this is the minimum we should be putting up with. And also crucially, if they weren't doing these things, then we, we probably wouldn't be doing the right thing. If we go back to that idea of dilemma in, um, in the direct action movement, if they were just ignoring us, then clearly we wouldn't be doing anything. We wouldn't be doing the right thing. We wouldn't be at the right, right part. We'd just be being ignored again. So we went in with wide up, eyes wide open, knowing this and, and not, you know, no one's gonna welcome being stopped at a border by terrorist police and interrogated about, you know, what your inner thoughts about religion are, um, you know, and not, not to be honest with you, not that the terrorist police seem to have any idea about religion and seem very confused um, um, when talking about it. Um, but, um, you know, we, we kind of expected this and, you know, yeah. yes, there's moments when we go, oh God, this is annoying, but there are other moments we go, no, this is right. And this is the minimum we can be doing. When people are suffering so much more than us all over the world, we refuse to be defined by where we happen to be brought up and where we happen to live now. We will stand in true international solidarity with the Palestinians as to what they suffer a day in, day out. And that puts what we do into perspective. Well, with that, um, I want to um, do just a little promo about the film that was made um, about the uh, the first year of direct action. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this short film and um, and you know how people can get in touch? Yeah, definitely. So it was done by Real Media Ricky, um, who has they have since the start of Palestine Action. Um, he was there when on our first ever action, been documenting every all of the actions in Palestine action and speaking to each and every activist who's taken part um, in direct action against Albert systems um, and has, I think, really cleverly shown how the courts continue to evade or Albert systems continue to evade um, uh, basing us in, in, in the courts and about our campaign. Um, so I definitely recommend that people uh, people watch it. It's a half an hour documentary which basically covers a lot of our first year um, of actions and uh, you can find it on Real Media um, also on YouTube and if people want to join us just check us out on social media at pal underscore action um, and palestineaction.org. Yeah I'll just add with the film we were hoping for a Hollywood ending when we would come out of our trial not guilty <laughs> and then immediately <laughs> I won't say what was going to happen next. Um, <laughs> and, and come out. But obviously the state decided to yeah. postpone our trial for another year. Mm -hmm. So we'll have to have um, Palestine Action, the movie, the sequel. Uh, <laughs> and we're hoping yeah, to make it at least an ongoing franchise, but maybe three years until we shut Elwood down. Yeah, yeah, Love it. 
Well, it's the delay of the trial. <laughs> Bring more so than us. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it's great. Yeah. You can also watch that uh, short film um, embedded in Asa's uh, most recent post that he was mentioning, and we'll put it up right here um, at the Electronic Intifada. So during uh, Israel's most recent war against the population of the Gaza Strip in May, um, your activists, not yourselves personally because of the bail conditions, um, but your activists carried on and took several different uh, actions against different factories around the UK. Um, and then what began happening was really encouraging to see, which was this sort of spontaneous uh, arrival of local people outside the factories they just got wind of what you were doing on social media and just came out you like you hadn't from what i understand you hadn't planned this but they just came out and started demonstrating outside the factories uh in support of you and against what albert is doing um so you know activism can be especially when you cannot get any media attention can be a bit of a lonely pursuit sometimes so um what was it like to see it must have been so encouraging to see all that kind of outpouring of support. It was quite incredible. Um, and I think we were just in a room stuck there. Oh, we want to get that. But it was absolutely amazing. <laughs> it was yeah. it was incredible to see and just the growth of it and the and not even just the solidarity and support from the local community, but how committed they were to continuing the action in itself. So we had um, the activists on the we've had many obstacles throughout the way, um, throughout their occupation. It was a six-day occupation in total. But the police had uh, denied them um, water. They hadn't expected to be up there that long because normally the activists are taken down um, before that. But because of the community response, it was, and also it was the first time that the fire brigade union stepped in and intervened and told the fire service to back off and not to assist the police in in um, in taking protesters down and essentially allowed. Uh, as uh, far as an action and the activists to continue to shut down the operations of Israel's arms company there. Um, and, and after a certain point, they didn't have water on the roof, people were getting arrested, throwing bottles of water up on the roof. And these were just local people who said, I know the police have said that they're going to arrest us, but we're going to get water up on that roof. And they were adamant and they continued to do it. Um, and then even after that, when the six days was nearly ending and we'd seen thousands of people at a time um, over, over those six days come out, I think it was within half an hour, an hour, there was about 30 people at the gates. Then they saw the police come in and try and remove the activists. Then within a short period of time, there was a couple of hundred and then there was 500 and it just kept growing. And the local people had put their quite nice cars in the middle of the road, blocking the road, blocking the community <laughs> being able to go in, you know, putting putting their own, you know, their own items and their own livelihoods on the line um, to stop the police from taking away the activists and arresting them. And they'd actually taken fences, fenced it across the, um, the gates to block the police from coming out. They'd built their own barricades, basically. And there were families, uh, you know, young people, women and children who were part of it, who said, we're not going to move and we're not going to let you take them. And they held the police off into the night. Um, you know, it did, the police did turn violent as is expected. They took off their badges when they want to, you know, get into riot gear, et cetera. But for seven, eight hours, they held off 
the police taking away these activists, um, which was absolutely incredible to see. And then even when the police vans were taking the activists to the police station, there was 30 cars following the police vans with people who were supporting them throughout the wow. whole uh, throughout the whole action. So I think right. it's, yeah, and it's credible to see. And also for Elbit, that's absolutely not what they want. They want to be able to hide. They want to be able to hide in these factories in plain sight. But once you, especially in certain communities, once you expose it, it's the people just are outraged and rightly so by it. And then I think they get even more outraged when they see you know, and this is the thing with direct action, you kind of expose the truth when they see the police, rather than stopping this factory from producing weapons to kill people, they're trying to arrest these activists who are trying to stop it. And to most people, it's, that's illogical, isn't it? You know, without us being kind of indoctrinated by the system, which says you can't climb onto buildings, etc. Actually, to normal people, climbing onto a building and stopping a factory from running, which is producing weapons, Israel's weapons, is the right thing to do and to arrest them is the wrong thing to do. Um, and just to see how that community has now continued protests outside that factory ever since um, that action and are adamant on getting rid of the factory. Yeah, and I would say even though it wasn't planned, isn't that how any good mm. actual protest, yeah? The mm. ultra-managed protests that are called months in advice when people ask the police nicely if they can walk through central London are completely ineffectual. You know, we've all done it. I marched against the Iraq war with a million people and they still, the British and American occupying forces killed a million people there. It was particularly ineffective. The only things that are effective are when they happen spontaneously from a local community, not when you try to manage it as some kind of NGO in there, yeah? So we might not have planned it, but we could foresee it. Um, and, and, and actually when, when, when you've done these actions in some of those communities, and I would say you've also done some community building in those areas in terms of some of the people who've joined you or for our social media, then these things can be forecast to happen, but they need to be organic. They need to be spontaneous and they need to take on some of that themselves rather than being stage managed to look good. Um, to be effective, they need to just happen. Hoda Amori and Richard Barnard, thank you so much for all that you do and um, keep us posted on the next actions that, that you're all involved in. Thank you. Okay, we will thank do. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on donate now. Thank you.